6. It field, but is now called Clipham for a curious reason. When the stagecoaches were running, the town was quite a place, as its several good old houses indicate, but the railroads, when they were built, ignored the town, but killed the stage lines, with the result that the little settlement dried up, even before this an old plaster-covered house, still standing, became haunted, the witches who resided in it developed the unpleasant custom of flying out at night and cutting pieces from the clothing of passers-by, and that is how the town came to be called Clip, a century or so ago, when the rudeness of the witches had long annoyed the inhabitants of Clip, and had proved very detrimental to their clothing, a Roman Catholic priest came along and told them that if they would give him a certain field, he would rid them of the evil spirits, this struck the worthy citizens of Clip as a good bargain, they gave the priest his field it is still known as the priest's field, and is now used as a place for basket picnics and forth with the operations of the witches ceased, so, at least, the story goes, not far beyond Clip lies the hamlet of Lee Town, taking its name from that General Charles Lee who commanded an American army in the Revolutionary War, but who was suspected by Washington of being a traitor, and was finally court-martialed and cashiered from the army, the old stone house which Lee built at Lee Town, and in which he lived after his disgrace, still remains, instead of having partitions in his house the old general lived in one large room, upon the floor of which he made chalk marks to indicate different chambers, here he dwelt surrounded by innumerable dogs, and here he was frequently visited by generals Horatio Gates and Adam Stephen, who were neighbors and cronies of his, and met at his house to drink wine and exchange stories, it is said that upon one of these occasions Lee got up and declared, the county of Berkeley is to be congratulated upon having as citizens three noted generals of the revolution, each of whom was ignominiously cashiered, you, Stephen, for getting drunk when you should have been sober, you, Gates, for advancing when you should have retreated, and your humble servant for retreating when he should have advanced, Lee was a turbulent, insubordinate, hard-drinking rascal, and nothing could be more characteristic than the will, written in his own handwriting, filed by the old reprobate with the clerk of the Berkeley County Court, and expressing the following sentiments, I desire most earnestly that I may not be buried in any church or churchyard, or within a mile of any Presbyterian or Anabaptist meeting house, for since I have resided in this county I have kept so much bad company when living that I do not desire to continue it when dead, during Lee's life there. Lee Town was probably a livelier place than it is today. Something of its present state may be gathered from the fact that when a lady of my acquaintance stopped her motor there recently, and asked some men what time it was, they stared blankly at her for a moment, after which one of them said seriously, We don't know. We don't have time here. Chapter XII ride a horse and vaulted with such ease into his seat as if an angel dropped down from the clouds to turn and win a fiery pegasus and which the world with noble horsemanship, King Henry Ivy, claim on court, near Charlestown, the house in which my companion and I were so fortunate as to be guests during our visit to this part of the country, is one of the old Washington houses, having been built by Bushrod Corbin Washington, a nephew of the first president, it is a beautiful brick building, with courts at either end, the brick walls of which, connecting with the house, extend its lines with peculiar grace, and tie to the main structure the twin buildings which balance it, according to the delightful fashion of early Virginia architecture, the hexagonal brick tile of the front walk at Claymont Court, and the square stone pavement of the portico, resemble exactly those at Mount Vernon, and are said to have been imported at the same time, 
and it is believed also that the Claymont box trees were brought over with those growing at Mount Vernon. The estate was sold out of the Washington family in 1870, when it was acquired by a Colonel March, who later sold it to a gentleman whose wild performances at Claymont are not only remembered, but are commemorated in the house, in the cellar, for instance, bricked up in a room barely large enough to hold it, whence it cannot be removed except by tearing down a heavy wall stands a huge carved sideboard to which the young man took a dislike, and which he therefore caused to be carried to the cellar and immured, despite the protests of his family. It is said that upon another occasion he conceived the picturesque idea of riding his horse upstairs and hitching it to his bedpost, and that he did so as witnessed by definite marks of horseshoes on the oak treads of the stair. Later Frank R. Stockton purchased the place, and there he wrote his story, The Captain of the Tollgate, which was published posthumously but in all its history this glorious old house has never been a happier home, or a more interesting one, than it is today, for now it is the residence of four young ladies, sisters, who, because of their divergent tastes and their complete congeniality, continually suggest the fancy that they have stepped out of a novel, one of them is the efficient sister, who runs the automobile and the farm of two or three hundred acres, sells the produce, keeps the accounts, and pays off the men, Another is the domestic sister, who conducts the admirable Maynosh, another is the sociological and artistic sister, who draws and plays and thinks about the masses, while the fourth is the sprightly sister who likes to dance. Never had my companion or I seen a more charming, a more varied household, an establishment more self-contained, more complete in all things from vegetables to brains. No need to leave the place for anything, yet if one wished to look about the country, there was the motor and there were the saddle horses in the stable all of them members of old Virginian families and there were four equestrian young ladies. Would you all like to ride today? One of the sisters asked us at breakfast, to my companion. Horseback riding is comparatively a new thing. He had taken it up a year before partly because of appeals from me, partly because of changes which he had begun to notice in his topography. Compared with him I was a veteran horseman for it was then a year and three months since I had begun my riding lessons. I said that I would like to ride, but he declared that he must stay behind and make a drawing. Sometimes, in the past, I had thought I would prefer to make my living as a painter or an illustrator than as a writer, but at this juncture it occurred to me that, though the writer's medium of expression is a less agreeable one than that of the graphic artist, it is much pleasanter to ride about with pretty girls than to sit alone and draw a picture of their house. I began to feel sorry for my companion, the thought of our riding daily off, and leaving him at work, made him seem pathetic. My appeals, however, made no impression upon his inflexible sense of duty, and I soon ceased trying to persuade him to join us, and began to speculate, instead, as to whether all four sisters would accompany me, or whether only two or three of them would go and if so, which, what kind of horse do you like? asked one. Such a question always troubles me. It is embarrassing. Imagine saying to a young lady who likes to ride thoroughbred hunters across fields and over ditches and fences, I should like a handsome horse. One that will cause me to appear to advantage. One that looks spirited but is in reality tame. Such an admission would be out of character with the whole idea of riding. One could hardly make it to one's most intimate male friend, let alone to a girl who knows all about withers and hawks and pastern joints and talks about, paneled country, and takes the, racing calendar, to such a young lady it is impossible to say, I have ridden for a little more than a year, 
The horses with which I am acquainted are benevolent creatures from a riding school near Central Park, they go around the reservoir twice, and return automatically, and they sigh deeply when one mounts and again when one gets off. No, that sort of thing will not do at all, for the horse besides having been placed in a position more aristocratic than ever, through the philanthropies of Henry Ford is essentially, sporty. You must be a, sport, or you must keep away from him. You must approach him with dash or you must not approach him at all. And when a young lady inquires what kind of horse you like, there is but one way to reply. It doesn't matter at all. I answered, any horse will do for me. Then, after a little pause, I added, as though it were merely an amusing afterthought, I suppose I shall be stiff after my ride. I haven't been on a horse in nearly two months. Then, said the sympathetic young lady, you'll want an easy ride. I suppose it might be more sensible. I conceded. Better give him the black mare. Put in the efficient sister. She hasn't been out lately, said the other. You know how she acts when she hasn't been ridden enough. He might not know just how to take her. I was thinking of giving him Dr. Bell. Dr. Bell's too gentle, said the efficient sister. Which horse do you think you'd like? The other asked me. Dr. Bell has plenty of life, but he's gentle. The black mare's a little bit flighty at first but if you can ride her she soon finds it out and settles down. I want to ask, what happens if she finds out that you can't ride her? What does she do then? But I refrained. She's never thrown anybody but a stable boy and a man who came up here to visit and neither one of them could ride worth the cent, said the efficient sister. Meanwhile I had been thinking hard. What color is Dr. Bell? I asked. He's a sorrel. Then, I said, I believe I'd rather ride Dr. Bell. I don't like black horses, it is simply one of those peculiar aversions one gets, they seem to accept this statement, and so the matter was agreeably settled, when, at ten o'clock, I came down dressed for riding, my companion was out in front of the house, making a drawing, the four young ladies were with him, all seemingly enchanted with his work, and none of them in riding habits, who's going with me, I asked as I strolled toward them, they looked at one another inquiringly, then the efficient sister said, I'd like to go, but this is payday and I can't leave the place. I have to go to town for some supplies, said the domestic sister. I want to stay and watch this, said the sociological and artistic sister. She made a gesture toward my companion, but I think she referred to his drawing. I'm going away to a house party, said the sprightly sister who likes to dance. I must pack. You can't get lost, said the domestic sister, even if you should. Put in the efficient sister. Dr. Bell would bring you home. During this conversation my companion did not look up from his work. Neither did he speak, yet upon his back there was an expression of derisive glee which made me hope, vindictively, that he would smudge his drawing. However inscrutable his face, I had never known a man with a back so expressive. Here comes Dr. Bell, remarked the sociological and artistic sister, as a negro groom appeared leading the sorrel steed. Well, I said trying to speak debonairly as I started toward the drive. I'll be going. I wished to leave them where they were and go around to the other side of the house to mount. I had noticed a stone block there and meant to use it if no one but the groom were present. Also I intended to tip the groom and ask him a few casual questions about the ways of Dr. Bell. I might have managed this but for a sudden manifestation of interest on the part of my companion. Come on, he said to the young ladies. Let's go and see him off. It seemed to me that he emphasized the word, off, and pleasantly. However I tried to seem calm as we moved toward the drive, 
Dr. Bell had a bright brown eye, there was something alert in the gaze with which he watched us moving toward him. However, to my great relief he stood quite still while two of the sisters who preceded me by a few steps, went up and patted him. Evidently he liked to be patted. I decided that I would pat him also. I had approached him from the left and in order to mount I now found it necessary to circle around, in front of him. I was determined that if the horse would but remain stationary I should step up to him, speak to him, give him a quick pat on the neck, gather the reins in my hand, place my foot swiftly in the stirrup, take a good hop, and be on his back before anyone had time to notice. Dr. Bell, however, caused me to alter these plans, for though he had stood docile as a dog while the sisters patted him, his manner underwent a change on sight of me. I do not think this change was caused by any personal dislike for me. I believe he would have done the same had any stranger appeared before him in riding boots. The trouble was, probably, that he had expected to be ridden by one of the young ladies, and was shocked by the abrupt discovery that a total stranger was to ride him. This is nearly my surmise. I do not claim deep understanding of the mental workings of any horse, for there is no logic about them or their performances. They are like crafty lunatics. Reasoning, if they reason at all, in a manner too treacherous and devious for human comprehension, their very fullness, the service they render man, is founded on their own folly, were it not for that, man could not even catch them, let alone force them to submit, like weak-minded giants, to his will. The fact is that, excepting barnyard fowls, the horse is the most idiotic of all animals, and, pound for pound, even the miserable hen is his intellectual superior, indeed. If horses had brains no better than those of hens, but proportionately larger, they would not be drawing wagons, and carrying men upon their backs, but would be lecturing to a women's clubs, and holding chairs in universities, and writing essays on the development of the short story in America. Horse lovers, who are among the most prejudiced of all prejudiced people, and who regard horses with an amiable but fatuous admiration such as young parents have for their babies will try to tell you that these great creatures which they love are not mentally deficient. Ask them why the horse, with his superior strength, submits to man, and they will tell you that the horse's eye magnifies, and that, to the horse, man consequently appears to be two or three times his actual size. Nonsense. There is but one reason for the yielding of the horse, he is another fool. Everything proves him a fool. He will charge into battle. He will walk cheerfully beside a precipice. He will break his back pulling a heavy wagon, or break his leg or his neck in jumping a hurdle, yet he will go into a frenzy of fright at the sight of a running child, a roadside rock, or the shadow of a branch across the path, and not even a German chancellor could shy as he will at a scrap of paper. As I passed in front of Dr. Bell he rolled his eyes at me horribly, and rose upon his hind legs almost upsetting the groom as he went up and barely missing him with his forefeet as he brought them to earth again. What's the matter with him? I asked, stopping. I guess he just feels good, said the efficient sister. Yasha, the ass all, said the groom cheerfully. He's all right, gentle the lamb. As he made the statement, I took another step in the direction of the horse, whereat he reared again. Well, now, said the groom, patting Dr. Bell upon the neck. Feeling pretty good as morning, is you? There, there, Dr. Bell, however, paid little attention to his attendant, but gazed steadily at me with an evil look. Does he always do like that? I asked the domestic sister. I never saw him do it before, she said. 
Maybe he doesn't admire the cut of your riding breeches, suggested my companion. Oh, Mumbersha, protested the groom. It asks his leeway try and he tell you he likes to ladies to ride him better and he likes to gem in. He means he doesn't want me to ride him. Yasha, D-A-S-J's his lead-T-P-S got now. He be all right once you in the saddle. But how am I to get in the saddle if he keeps doing that? I hold him all right, said the groom. You J's get on him. Sha, he soon find out who s boss. I think he will, said my heartless companion. Never you fee. Sha, the man said to me. Oh no, the minute I saw your legs tee you was a horse man. Yasha, I says to your leg gauge. I says, dad jam on certainty been in the cavalry. He has, with them fine crooked legs oh his you should have told that to Dr. Bell. Instead, suggested my companion. At this everyone laughed. Even the groom laughed a wheezy, cackling negro laugh. The situation was becoming unbearable. Clearly I must try to mount. Perhaps I should not succeed. But I must try. As I was endeavoring to adjust my mind to this unpleasant fact the efficient sister spoke. That horse is going to be ridden. She said firmly. If I have to go upstairs and dress and ride him myself. That settled it. Now you hold him down, I said to the groom, and stepped forward. As I did so Dr. Bell reared again, simultaneously drawing back sidewise and turning his flank away from me. But this time the efficient sister hit him with a crop she had found somewhere, and he came down hastily, and began to dance a sort of double clog with all four feet. After several efforts I managed to get beside him. Gathering the reins in my left hand I put my foot up swiftly, found the stirrup and with a hop, managed to board the beast, as I did so, the groom let him go, both stirrups were short, but it was too late to discuss that, for by the time I was adjusted to my seat we had traveled, at a run, over a considerable part of the lawn and through most of the flowers, the shortness of the stirrups made me bounce, and I had a feeling that I might do better to remove my feet from them entirely, but as I had never ridden without stirrups I hesitated to try it now. Therefore I nearly dug my knees desperately into the saddle flaps and awaited what should come, while endeavoring to check the animal. He, however, kept his head down, which not only made it difficult to stop him, but also gave me an unpleasant sense as of riding on the cowcatcher of a locomotive with nothing but space in front of me. Once, with a jerk, I managed to get his head up, but when I did that he reared. I do not care for rearing, to add to my delight. One of the dogs now ran out and began to bark and circle around us, jumping up at the horse's nose and nipping at his heels. This brought on new activities, for now Dr. Bell not only reared but elevated himself suddenly behind, to kick at the dog. However, there was one good result. We stopped running and began to trot rapidly about in circles, dodging the dog, and this finally brought us back toward the house. My stirrups are too short, I shouted to the groom, right of he. Sha, he called back. I tried to do it, but Dr. Bell continued to move in circles. At last, however, the man managed to catch us by advancing with his hand extended, as though offering a lump of sugar, at the same time talking gently to my steed. Then, while my companion held the bit the negro adjusted the stirrup leathers, I was glad of the breathing spell. I wished that it took longer to adjust stirrups. You'd better go out by the drive this time, said the efficient sister. I intended to before, I told her, but he didn't seem to understand the signals, you've got spurs on, give him the spur, as a matter of fact, I had hesitated to give him the spur, 
it seemed to me that he was annoyed with me anyway, and that the spur would only serve to increase his prejudice. I wanted to rule him not by brute force but by kindness. I wished that I could somehow make him know that I was a regular subscriber to the SPCA that I love children and animals and all helpless creatures, both great and small, that I used the dumb brutes gently and only asked in return that they do the same by me. But how is one to communicate such humanitarian ideas to a babe? Stupid, willful, perverse, diabolical creature like a horse? I was determined that when we started again we should not run over the lawn if I could possibly prevent it. Therefore I had the groom head the horse down the drive, and the moment he released him, I touched Dr. Bell with the spurs. The result was magical. He started on a run but kept in the road where I wanted him to be, giving me, for the moment, a sense of having something almost like control over him. At the foot of the drive was a gate which I knew could be opened without dismounting, by pulling a rope, and as no horse, unless quite out of his mind, will deliberately run into a gate. I had reason to hope that Dr. Bell would stop when he got there. Imagine my feelings. Then, when on sight of the gate he not only failed to slacken his pace, but actually dashed at it faster than ever. Within a few feet of the barrier he seemed to pause momentarily, hunching himself in a peculiar and alarming manner. Then he arose, sailed through the air like a swallow, came down beyond like a load of trunks falling off from a truck, and galloped down the highway seemingly quite indifferent to the fact that the stirrups were flapping at his sides and that I had moved from the saddle to a point near the base of his neck. My position at the moment was one of considerable insecurity. By holding on to his mane and wriggling backward I hoped to stay on, provided he did not put down his head. If he did that, I was lost. Fortunately for me, however, Dr. Bell did not realize with what ease he could have dropped me at that moment, and by dint of cautious but eager gymnastics, I managed to regain the saddle and the stirrups, although in doing so I pricked him several times with the spurs, with the result that, though he ran faster than ever for a time, he must have presently concluded that I didn't care how fast he went, at all events, he slackened his pace to a canter, from which, shortly, I managed to draw him down to a trot and then to a walk, I am glad to say that not until now had we met any vehicle, even while he was running. Even while I was engaged in maintaining a precarious seat upon his neck, I had found time to hope fervently that we should not encounter an automobile. I was afraid that he would jump it if we did. Now, however, I saw a motor approaching. Dr. Bell saw it, too, and pricked up his ears. Seizing the reins firmly in one hand, I waved with the other, signaling to the motorist to stop, which he did, pulling out into the ditch. Meanwhile I talked to Dr. Bell patting him on the neck and telling him to go on and not to be afraid, because it was all right. Dr. Bell did go on. He went up to the front of the motor, past the side of it, and on behind it, without showing the least sign of alarm. He did not mind it at all, but the man in the motor minded, annoyed with me for having stopped him unnecessarily. He shouted something after me, but I paid no attention to him. Under the circumstances, it seemed the only thing to do. I might have gotten off. I might conceivably have beaten him, but I never could have held the horse while doing it, or have gotten on again. Presently, when I was changing the position of the reins, which were hurting my fingers because I had gripped them so tight, I accidentally shifted the gears in some way, so to speak, sending Dr. Bell off at a pace which was neither a trot nor a canter, but which carried us along at a sort of smooth, rapid glide. At first I took this gate to be a swift trot, 
and attempted to post to it, then, as that did not work, I sat still in the saddle and, finding the posture comfortable, concluded that Dr. Bell must be single-footing, I had never single-foot before, just as I was beginning to like it, however, he changed to a trot, then back to single-footing again, and so on, in a curious puzzling manner, except for the changes of gait, we were now going on rather well, and I had begun, for the first time, to feel a little security, when all of a sudden he swerved off and galloped with me up a driveway leading toward a white house which stood on a hill two or three hundred yards from the road, again I tried to stop him, but when I pulled on the reins he shook his head savagely from side to side and snorted in a loud and threatening manner, as we neared the house I saw that two ladies were sitting on the porch regarding our approach with interest, I hoped that Dr. Bell would find some way of keeping on past the house and into the fields, but he had no such intention, instead of going by, he swung around the circle before the porch, and stopped at the steps, upon which the two ladies were sitting, one of them was a white-haired woman of gentle mien, the other was a girl of eighteen or twenty with pretty, mischievous eyes, both the ladies looked up inquiringly as Dr. Bell and I stopped, I lifted my hat, it was the only thing I could think of to do at the moment, at this they both nodded gravely, then we sat and stared at one another, well, said the old lady, when the silence had become embarrassing, I felt that I must say something, so I remarked, this is a very pretty place you have here, at this, though the statement was quite true, they looked perplexed, is there any message, asked the young woman, after another pause, oh, no, I answered lightly, I was riding by and thought I'd take the liberty of coming up and telling you telling you that although I am a northerner and a stranger here, I love the south, the quaint old southern customs, the lovely old houses, the delicious waffles, but that is very gratifying, said she, I am sorry to say we are all out of waffles at present, oh, I don't want any now, I replied politely, well, if you don't mind my asking, what do you want, I want, I said, desperately, to see your groom for a moment, if possible, he's gone to town, she replied, is there anything I can do, I see that your stirrup leather is twisted, with that she arose, came down, removed my foot from the stirrup, in a business-like manner, reversed the iron, and put my foot back for me, I thanked her, anything else, she asked, her witted eye twinkling, perhaps, I ventured, perhaps you know how to make a horse single foot, there are different ways, she said, with dry bell you might try using the cur gently, working it from side to side, I will, I said, thank you very much, and, said the girl, if he ever takes a notion to bolt with you, or to go up to some house where you don't want him to go, just touch him with the curb, that will fix him, he's very soft bent, but I tried that, I protested, she looked at my reins, then shook her head, Mumber, she said, you've got your curb rein and your snaffle rein mixed, I am very much indebted to you, I said, as I changed the position of the reins between my fingers, not at all, said she, I hope you'll get safely back to the claimant, if you want to jump him, give him his head, he'll take off all right, thanks, I returned, I don't want to jump him, then lifting my head and thanking her again, I wiggled the cur gently from side to side, as directed, and departed, single footing comfortably, Dr. Bell and I got home very nicely, he wanted to jump the gate again, but I checked him with the curb. After pulling the rope to open the gate I must have got the reins mixed once more, for as I was nearing the house, 
come in the feeling that I had mastered the animal, and intent upon cantering up to the porch in fine style, Dr. Bellsworth suddenly off to the stable, went into the door, and, before I could stop him, entered his stall, there I dismounted in absolute privacy, it was quite easy, I had only to climb onto the partition and drop down into the next stall, which, by good fortune, was vacant, with a single exception, this was the only riding I did in the south, and on the one other occasion of which I speak I did not ride alone, but had, surrounding me, the entire 11th United States Cavalry, Chapter XII into the Old Dominion when two men are traveling together on an equal footing, and it becomes necessary to decide between two rooms in a hotel, how is the decision to be made, which man is to take the big, bright corner room, and which the little room that faces on the court and is fragrant of the bakery below, or again, which man shall occupy the lower berth in a Pullman drawing room, and which shall try to sleep upon the shelf-like couch, or when there is but one lower left, which shall take the upper, if an extra kit bag be required for the use of both, who shall pay for it and own it at the journey's end, who shall pay for this meal and who for that, or yet again, if there be but one cheap heavy overcoat in a shop, and both desire to own that coat, which one shall have the right of purchase, who shall tip the bellboy for bringing up the bags, or the porter for taking down the trunks, who shall take home from a dance the girl both want to take, and who shall escort the unattractive one who resides in a remote suburb, between two able-bodied men there is no uncomfortable complication of politeness in such matters, on a brief journey there might be, but on a long journey the thin veil of factitious courtesy is cast aside, each wants his fair share of what is best and makes no pretense to the contrary, upon our first long journey together, some years ago, my companion and I established a custom of settling all such questions by matching coins, and we have maintained this habit ever since, upon the whole it has worked well, we have matched for everything except railroad fares and hotel bills, and though fortune has sometimes favored one or the other for a time, I believe that, had we kept accounts, we should find ourselves today practically even, our system of matching has some correlated customs, now and then, for instance, when one of us is unlucky and has been stuck for a series of meals, the other, impartial reparation, will declare a party, birthdays and holidays also call for parties, and sometimes there will be a party for no particular reason other than that we feel like having one, two of our parties on this journey have been given in the basement cafe of the Shoreham Hotel in Washington, both were supper parties, the first I gave in honor of my companion, for the reason that we both like the Shoreham Cafe, and that a party seemed to be, 